Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 is our text for this morning, excellent singing. We're going to conclude our series today that we've been going through since Labor Day um, called Behold Your God, talking about different attributes and characteristics of of God and uh, who He is. And we're going to look at one final passage and message on that this morning. So I'm going to read to you. Our text this morning is actually Romans 3, and only two verses is our text, 25 and 26. But I'm going to start in verse 19, and you can follow along as I read. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, uh, and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'll help us as we look at this passage. Uh, Lord, it is so rich with truth. Lord, and there's so much that we can take from this and, and learn about you. So Lord, help us to get a better picture of who you are today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I've got to be honest with you for a moment. I am nervous about this message. Let me explain to you why. Um, I've been here about 12 years, and... Uh, during those 12 years, some of you remember when Pastor Miller was the pastor, that every Thanksgiving his family would get together over Thanksgiving, which meant he was always gone on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which meant I was the one that preached it. And so in the 12 years I've been here, I think I've preached this particular Sunday 11 times. And there's something I've learned over the 11 times of doing that, and this is, that is this. You guys are not awake. You see, what happened was, is you woke up Thursday and you spent all day doing absolutely nothing but, but eating turkey and stuffing your faces and watching football or whatever else it was you did. And then some of you, for whatever reason, got up like 3 o'clock in the morning on Friday and went and stood in lines for hours upon hours upon hours to um, get something that you probably could have got today for the same price. And then you went home and stuffed your face with more turkey. And then what did you do yesterday? You stuffed your face with more turkey. So some of, most of you are in this turkey coma. You say, how do you know this? Because I've preached this particular day many times, and I've stood up here and watched people. And so I say that, why I'm nervous, is because what I'm going to preach today is honestly a very heavy topic. And you're going to have to stay engaged. You're going to... For some of you, this is going to be hard. You're going to have to stay awake. 
You're going to have to listen because, and, and I debated, to be honest, I debated even last night. I, I come here at night and I study and I was sitting here last night. I'm a late night person and it was about quarter till 12 and I'm still studying and I'm going, okay, God, maybe you don't want me to do this message. Should I change right now? And I decide, no, this is what God laid on my heart that I believe that we need. But this is a, uh, um, so I'd say I'm nervous because I think you need to stay engaged. There's some powerful truths in this text, but it is, it, it is something that's going to challenge your mind. And so I'm asking you to stay focused as we go through this. Jonathan Edwards is, uh, was a theologian and a preacher. And you talk about, you know, staying engaged. If you've ever read through Jonathan Edwards' messages, he was not the most dynamic of preachers. And he would preach for hours, and people would just stay engaged. So he, there, he, the lesson learned. But Jonathan Edwards was a theologian. He was a preacher in the, in the mid-1700s. Um, he was most known for his great message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was a message that propelled our nation into what was known as the Great Awakening, a, a revival period that impacted uh, many people and saw our, our, our nation literally changed uh, in a matter of uh, weeks. He once preached a very powerful message from the phrase in, in Romans chapter 3. If you look in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it says there, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. In other words, that the law places us, because God gave us the law, it places us under the law. And then it says, so that every mouth may be stopped. And, one, and, and Jonathan Edwards once preached a message on that phrase, so that every mouth may, may be stopped. In other words, that we have no argument against God that, uh, to our worthiness of heaven because of the law. And he entitled the message, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. I read through portions of it, and it was a heavy message. It was, it was filled with uh, uh, condemning statements over and over and over again how, how sin condemns us. And he proclaimed in that the boldness that since God is infinitely righteous and holy, to sin against him is an infinitely heinous crime and deserves infinite punishment. You know, thus, God is just or right to punish sinners. Now, there is no record that I could find that, that Jonathan Edwards did a follow-up on that message on the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And he could have. And he could have entitled the message, The Justice of God and the Salvation of Sinners. And that is what uh, we're going to look at this morning. If you look again at the text that uh, we're going to focus on, verse 25, it says, Whom, talking about Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was also, this is an additional phrase, to show the righteousness at that present time so that we might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. What Paul is addressing is a is really a simple but yet complex question. And I want you to and I'm going to give you this question and I want you to ponder this question and think about it and I'm going to say it a few times so you get it. Uh, this is the question. How can a holy God be just and yet justify sinners? You say, well, that's way, yep, there it goes. That turkey coma is hitting in and I don't get what you just said. So let me rephrase it this way. 
How can a holy God, what is holiness? The holiness is that God is without sin. He is perfect. He is set apart from you and I because we are nothing like him. There's never been a time when God did anything that was wrong. Ever a time that God did anything that was impure. Everything that God does is right. And so the question is this, how can a God, how can a holy God be just? Now what, is, what does that mean to be just? Just is adhering to the demands of the law. Okay, so if the law is, okay, we have in the back, we have a police officer and he's driving his car around and, and uh, the, he sees someone fly by him going 90 miles an hour in a 35 zone and he pulls him over. The just thing to do, the demands of the law is that person dem- needs a ticket, correct? That is to be just. To be just is to say that the demands of the law require this. And so let, let, let me... Talk about this question again. How can a holy God, one who's without sin, be just? How can he adhere to the demands of the law and yet justify sinners? How can a holy God without sin do what is required by the law and yet allow a sinner to ever go free? That's a tough question. That's a question that we have to ask ourselves all the time. Or or here's another way for me to phrase that. How can God forgive our sins and still be a God of justice? Because if he never, ever, ever sins, and yet in in his justice it demands that he punish sin, it demands that he brings upon his wrath upon us, how can he then somehow allow that sin to be gone unpunished? That would no longer make him just, which would mean he's no longer holy. That's, that's heavy. Now, admittedly, most of you are probably not awake at night pondering this question. Because most of us think the exact opposite. Probably, if you've ever shared the gospel with someone, that's not the question they ask. No, usually it goes something like this. Why can't God just forgive everyone? When someone offends me, I forgive them, so why can't God do that? Why did Jesus have to even shed his blood? And the answer to that question is really rather simple. It's this. You can forgive and I can forgive um, because we are, we are not God, and so therefore we are not holy. And so we don't have perfect justice that demands that we uh, punish sin. And so we have the ability to forgive because we are not God. But God must maintain his absolute justice by punishing sin. An unjust God would not be a God at all. A God who did not punish sin. See, you've probably heard this many times. Well, if God is so loving, then why does God judge sinners? Because God is also just. And his justice demands that he punish sinners. Otherwise, if he did not punish sinners, then he won't no longer be just. If he's no longer just, then he's no longer right. If he's no longer right, he's no longer holy. If he's no longer holy, he's no longer God. And so because he is God, it demands justice. So the question that Paul is grappling with is, how can a holy God be just if he pardons guilty sinners? 
And the answer to that is really, is really simple yet complex. Jesus' sacrificial death satisfied God's wrath and displays God's justice in justifying sinners. I'll go on and explain that throughout the message. This, this week's text is really, it's complex on one level and it's simple on another. It's simple in the fact that when, G, when, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he bore the penalty of all of those who trust in him. But yet the difficulty of it comes in because there is theological terms that pop up out of this page that have been debated for, for many years and, and fill thousands and thousands of pages of commentaries and books. Words such as propitiation, or, uh, or the blood of Christ, or righteousness, or justify, or faith. And we need to understand those words, and we need to understand the flow of thought to apply Scripture correctly. This is important for us, because this is about our eternal destiny. And so let's look at just two points, and then there's a couple points under each of those. But first of all, Jesus' death satisfied God's wrath against us. So because Jesus Christ is, uh, because God is holy, he cannot at all be in the presence of sin, and he cannot look on sin, and he must judge sin. What we're going to look at is that Jesus' death satisfied God's wrath. A couple things under that. First of all, propitiation is the method to satisfy God's wrath against sin. Propitiation is not a word that we use every day. In fact, I'm going to take a wager that, except you're talking about this particular passage of Scripture, you've probably not used that word in your entire life. Propitiation comes from actually an ancient uh, religious um, pagan worship uh, where people would offer sacrifices to appease the gods. And actually the word propitiation is just the idea of appeasing the wrath of a god. So how do we uh, appease the wrath of God? And what Paul is saying in this passage as we look in verse 25, he says, talking about Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an appeasement of the wrath of God. And so what Paul is saying here is that Christ's sacrificial death is the means by which God's just wrath turns away from us into Jesus. We need to understand actually several things that distinguish biblical propitiation from the pagan use of the term. Okay? In the pagan religion, the person who, uh, there would be, you know, let's say an individual is going through life and they start experiencing difficult circumstances. Maybe, uh, maybe they have a child who dies or maybe they're experiencing sickness or, or some kind of horrible illness or maybe possibly they're their, um, their house burned down, or whatever it is, this pagan uh, religion, the, the person experiences some difficulty, and by that they assume that somehow they must have offended God. And so they um, are trying to figure out, what did I do to offend God? And so they would, they would try to figure out anything they could. Maybe I did this, or maybe I did that. And they were unclear of what it was that they did that offended their God, but because they, they offended their God, therefore God, their God, is judging them, and that's why they're having all these problems. And so because their gods were unpredictable, they had to do something uh, to take care of that because their God was upset. 
They're not quite sure what sacrifice to do because this sacrifice might appease this area and this sacrifice might appease this area. And so what they would do is they would go to their religious leader and they would say to their religious leader, um, I'm experiencing all sorts of problems, all sorts of trials, and, and, uh, and they would pay their religious leader a fee and he would, he would prescribe the right sacrifice in hopes that the deity, that the God, would be happy for a while. And his sacrifice might be an attempt to appease the gods. That was propitiation. But biblical propitiation is much different. In the first place, God's wrath against us is not mysterious. We don't have to sit there and go, why would God be mad at me? I'm a good person. Scripture tells us that's not true. Rather, God's wrath comes upon us because of God's holy opposition to evil. And so because of God's holy opposition to evil, He then passes on to us judgment. And there is two types of judgment. There's uh, temporary or temporal judgment, and then there's eternal judgment. We see temporary consequences of God's wrath all over the place uh, in the Bible. For example, Adam and Eve uh, sinned against God, and so what was the temporary, um, what was that, that, that first thing that happened as God's judgment? Well, first they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and then God pronounced curses on them, on the earth, and on, on the serpent. And he pronounced death. We see later on that the people continued to live and, and they would live in the way they wanted and so it came to the time of a man named Noah and God said, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm, I have to pass judgment upon, but this was temporary judgment. He passed judgment and it was in the form of the flood. We see another instance where God passed judgment. It was in Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. He, he sent um, judgment upon them. We see as we continue on in, in Revelation, it says that God pours out His wrath on rebellious people until the time when Christ returns. Uh, however, we also see in that same book of Revelation that, that this temporal, this temporary wrath will turn into a horrible eternal wrath at the final judgment. If you're in Romans, look back at Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. In Romans 1.18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Okay, Remember I said, with the pagan worship, it was they didn't know why they were having these problems. We do. Why is it? Why is the wrath of God revealed from heaven? Look what it says. Against all ungodliness. Now who's ungodly? Well, we just saw in the text we read earlier, it says, in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. So why is the wrath of God revealed? Because you're a sinner. And who's a sinner? Every one, one of us. And so this, this wrath, now what is the temporary wrath? Well, we go on, and we're not going to read it, but in Romans 1.24, down to uh, the end of the chapter, it talks about how God, because of their sin, God gave them up to impurities and, and, the, and all of these things. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He lists, lists what these dishonorable passions are. In other words, what it is, is, is in today we experience God's wrath because he allows us to suffer the consequences of sin. Because we do this, this consequence takes place, and that is the, the, the temporary or the temporal wrath of God that we experience all the time, don't we? 
And maybe sometimes we experience problems not because of our sin, but because of the general sin of mankind. You know, you, you wake up in the morning and say, I don't feel so good today, and I got a cold. That's, you know, the result of the sin of mankind. It's not, not necessarily because you sinned that day, but it's the temporal wrath of God because of general sin. Now, we look on in chapter 2, it goes on, it says, because of what God did and because of what God declared to us, no, none of us have an excuse in verse 1. But then look down at verse 5. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. And what he's telling us in this passage is that there's, when we sin, we're storing up wrath. Boom, boom. And then one day there would just be this unleashing of wrath by God. Now remember what we said, because God's holy and he's just, he can't hold back that wrath. You say he's loving, he is, but he's also just. And so what justice demands, what the law demands is that that sin be punished. The passage there tells us that, he, that, that this eternal punishment, this eternal judgment will come. Throughout, throughout Scripture, we see the obvious statement of God's wrath, and we see the temporal wrath, but we also see mentioned over and over this concept of this eternal wrath that'll come, and it'll be scary. In fact, we were just in the Scripture reading that Pastor Nate chose today. It was in Psalms that talked about that. We're storing up this wrath. But there's another major difference between the pagan concept of pacifying the anger of the gods and the biblical concept of propitiation. See, in the, in the pagan religion, people would take the initiative. Remember what I said, how, how the procedure would work? This man would say, hey, I'm going through all these problems. It must be that I angered the gods. And so what would he do? He would go to the religious leader and say, I've done something to anger the gods, and so I, I need some appeasement, I need some propitiation. And, and the religious leader would say, do this. But in the Bible, it is not man who makes the initiative, it's God who makes the initiative by providing a specific means of averting the wrath of God. And that's the amazing part, is God reached down and said, you know what, my wrath is coming, but I don't want it to come on you, and so I am going to provide propitiation for you. And he spells out for us what, um, why and he, that, that God brings on us because of sin. And no one does this accidentally. Not like we accidentally sinned and we angered God. God makes it very clear, and that's why he gave us his word. Adam and Eve were told by God not to eat of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, and they did. And he spelled out, hey, here's the consequences if you do. It'll be, if you disobey, it'll be death. When, when God presented the law of Moses, he spelled out for the nation of Israel, here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do. And along with it, he brought the consequences of disobedience. If you don't obey the law, here's what's going to happen. And what God has told us over and over again in his word is, here is, the, here is what the, the law and here's what you should do and when you don't, here's the consequence. We see that. But yet, in God's mercy, he provides a way to satisfy the wrath. In the Old Testament, he 
created a detailed sacrificial system where they were to go and they were to sacrifice an animal and it was supposed to be an animal that was perfect. And they would sacrifice this animal. But God did something greater. He did something more complete and that is by sending His Son to die in our place on the cross. God satisfied His own wrath against our sin. Jesus paid the debt that we owed so that God can show his grace and love to all that trust in him. I want you to notice in Romans chapter 3, look at verse uh, 25 again. It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word, that phrase, put forward, is an interesting one. Um, it really has two different meanings, and when you put them together, it tells us some, some interesting theological facts. First of all, it means that that idea there is it's, there, he, was, he planned it beforehand. He was purposeful in what he did. There was, a, there was an orchestrated method to what God did that he put for Jesus Christ. But the second meaning of that also gives us the idea that uh, he provided a, a sacrifice or he provided a, a substitute for our sins. And so what we get from that is God, that pur- God purposed and God planned to uh, display or set forth publicly Jesus so that it could appease his wrath. So that he could be loving and just at the same time. But it's not what we deserve. And so we see that propitiation is the method to satisfy God's wrath against sin. But secondly, Christ's blood is the means to propitiate God's wrath. See, he said that, that Jesus Christ was going to be the appeasement, but, but the, the means of how that take, took place is the blood. And, and some in our world today, and some in, even theologians, have, have not liked the emphasis of Christ's blood as a means of propitiation. I mean, it seems crude and primitive, doesn't it? And why is that the case? Why does the New Testament put such an emphasis on Christ's blood? Why doesn't it just refer to his death and his death only, which is clearly what the blood symbolizes? Why does it matter? Why does Paul say, and if you look in that passage, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, what does it say? By his blood. Why does it mention that? What is the significance of that? Well, that was part of the that was the connection with the Old Testament sacrificial system. That in the Old Testament, that it wasn't just that an animal died; they couldn't strangle an animal, they couldn't uh, drown an animal. They had to shed the animal's blood. But why did God require blood sacrifice in the Old Testament? Why was that? Well, in Leviticus, he tells us, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood." So, if there is to be uh, atonement for the life, then there must be blood shed in for atonement. And I have given it to you on the altar to, to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. So what God told uh, them was that's what they needed to do. And so whenever we see in Scripture there is any sense of atonement or appeasement or propitiation, there is always a blood sacrifice. Even, even we go back before the law, we see when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? God came in and said, uh, and they were embarrassed because they, they were unclothed, and so God came in, and what did God do? God took an animal and he killed the animal as a way of saying this, that there had to be a shedding of blood to cover the sin. You see that that took place. 
We see in uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system, God provided a temporary way for sinners to have their sins atoned so they could be, uh, they could be reconciled to him. And he required that they kill the, a male firstborn lamb or goat without blemish and use its blood as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And the emphasis over and over again was on the blood. That's not to be some gross, weird thing. It was the idea that, that life comes through the blood. And so it is because of the shedding of blood that we have forgiveness of sins. So we see that in, in this passage that, God, that Jesus' death satisfied God's wrath against us, but, but we need to go a step further because I really haven't answered the question, how can God be just and forgive our sins? Jesus' death displays God's justice and the forgiveness of sins. We see this in two separate ways, and I want to talk about these. And we see, first of all, uh, in that passage, in verse 25, it says, the first way was by passing over, it's, you see there it says, he passed over the former sins. What's that a reference to? That's a reference to the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? See, if God was just, then and, and Jesus Christ was the only appeasement for the wrath of God, then why is it that the Old Testament saints weren't immediately punished with the wrath of God? That's the question he's asking. And so we see the first part of that is God's justice is displayed in passing over sins committed before the cross. Because Paul is answering the charge that forgiveness comes only through Christ's death on the cross, then God was either unjust or terribly sloppy about sin that he let go that was committed before the cross. Because we know that it wasn't just about the animal sacrifices because the animal sacrifice was not enough. Look what Hebrews says. Hebrews talking about this, this very thought says this, but in these sacrifices, that's the Old Testament sacrificial system, there is, the, uh, there is a reminder of sin every day. They had to do it constantly, uh, excuse me, every year. Every year they had to come and it was just a reminder of their sin. But notice what it says next. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the wrath of God was not held back just because they offered these. Those Old Testament sacrifices of animals could never cleanse the, the consciences of the worshipers who offered them. The fact that the people in the Old Testament era could be forgiven without the satisfaction of Jesus' death implies that God is, must be unjust or not righteous. Well, what Paul is arguing in this passage is that God's forbearance or God's patience in passing over did not undermine his righteousness because this sacrificial system in the Old Testament found its final fulfillment in the death of Jesus. This does not mean that God failed or that God uh, uh, to punish or that God overlooked sin, nor does it mean that God did not forgive sins under the Old Testament way. Paul's meaning here is rather that what happened was is that God postponed the full penalty due sin in the Old Testament because of their faithfulness and sacrificing as a picture. 
It is as if the Old Testament saints who offer the animal sacrifices in obedience to the law were forgiven on, how do I put it this way? They were forgiven on credit. The payment of the bill was promised, but it had not yet been paid. Notice what it says in, in Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 14. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. It's talking about Jesus Christ. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant, committed before. Because of what Jesus Christ did, it, it, it still satisfies what, what, um, what the sin that was committed. God's righteousness in passing over sins of those before Christ was vindicated, was um, fulfilled because Jesus paid the penalty in full. For those sins. But secondly, God's justice is displayed after the cross in justifying the one who has faith in Christ. See, verse 25 deals with the question of God's justice in justifying the sins before the cross, but in verse 26, look there again, it says this, it was to show, uh, his propitiation was to show his righteousness at present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 26 shows that he was um, righteous in justifying those after the cross. But if the accused is actually guilty and the judge declares him to be innocent, is he a just judge? Let me give you a human example. Okay, If, if someone commits murder and they go to court, and I understand court systems different than what I'm going to explain, but just bear with me on the illustration. And he goes to court, and the judge looks and says, you know what, I'm going to declare you're, you're guilty. I mean, the evidence is all there. There was eyewitnesses. Everyone knows it. And he looks and says, I'm going to declare you innocent. What would we be doing? We would be demanding justice, wouldn't we? Well, that's not right. It's obvious. Everyone, everyone knows. I mean, he should be punished for what he did. And so what we're saying in this, what, what, what Paul is questioning is, and what we've been talking about is, uh, is the same idea. If the accused is actually guilty, which he was, but what we're talking about is us, we're actually guilty, and the judge declares him not only to be innocent, but to be righteous, which is what God does, then isn't he a unjust judge? And what Paul is saying is no. No. That's not the case. The death of Jesus demonstrated that the justice had been served. In, in other words, because Jesus Christ died, he appeased the wrath of God. And the death of Jesus did that. And God didn't just shrug off sin because we know that's not the case. Because why? Because uh, what is Romans uh, 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And so God is saying, yes, the penalty for sin is death. But because of what Jesus Christ did, it appeased the wrath of God for those that believe. On the cross, Jesus' justice was satisfied so that his mercy could flow to every sinner who trusts in him. The propitiation that God set forth in Jesus' blood means that he would be just. He would be right in justifying the one who has faith in him. 
Because Jesus was fully human, his death could be applied to the sins of all humans. Because Jesus was fully God, his death was infinitely uh, worthy of being the sacrifice that we need. But I want you to note something. Look again at verse 26. The benefits of Jesus' death do not apply to everyone. I want you to notice what he says in verse 26 at the very end there. He says, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's because God and, and makes an emphasis, and Paul emphasizes faith throughout this passage. In fact, if you were to read verses 21 through 31, seven times he uses the word faith. That is, it is faith. But here's the interesting thing. As we study faith, faith is not a work on our part that contributes towards our salvation. Faith, the Bible tells us, is a gift of God and not something that we originate. If it was, then we could boast about it. So thankfully, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But don't miss this. He is just. He is right. But the only way that was possible was through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, then our sins would have to be judged or we couldn't call them just. And if we couldn't call them just, then we couldn't call them holy. So in conclusion here, let's look just, just for a few moments at some practical applications. First of all, God takes sin very seriously. God's grace does not mean that he was messy and sloppy and lazy about sin. God does not just shrug off sin and say, oh well, let's not worry about sin. After all, everyone sins. No, his grace is grounded in his justice. God takes sin so incredibly serious that he made Jesus who knew no sin who never sinned to be sin on our behalf so that and here's the crazy part so that we might become the righteousness of God that's how much he loves us you know, and you, you talk to people today and, and you'll have people come up to you and you'll say, well, if God was a God of love, then why does he punish sin? And it's, you know, what you have to stop and say was, no, man, God is so loving that yes, his holiness demands that he judge you, but his, because of his love, look what he did. But he takes sin seriously. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. And so either you trust in Christ as your sin bearer or you make the choice to face the wrath of God. And secondly, because God takes sin so seriously, we should as well. How often do you contemplate that it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross? And that means that we should hate our sin. Do you hate your sin? You know, we justify ourselves all the time. 
Just, just this week, I, I, I was struggling, and my, my kids can tell you this. I was struggling. I allowed a circumstance to cause me to sin. And I stopped and I justified my own sin because of other people's actions. And I'll be honest, what happened in this was my wife confronted me on it. And it broke me. I have no business justifying my sin. Only God can do that. And God hates my sin. And yet somehow I think it's okay. Charles Spurgeon said this, Shall I spare the sins then that nailed my Savior to the tree? O Christian, how you ought to hate the very thought of your sin. We are very severe upon the sins of others sometimes, but how much more severe ought we to be on our own sin? Yet how often do you justify it? Well, you know, I got angry because that person did this to me. Or, I retaliated because they said that to me. Or, and the list goes on and on. But because God takes sin so seriously, we should as well. And then finally, this is the awesome part, is any sinner can come to God and find mercy. Any sinner. There's a hymn that we sing from time to time. There is a fountain filled with blood. It was written by, an, by a man by the name of William Cooper, and he, was, he uh, lived in the 18th century. He was a poet, but he was an interesting man. He, he, he suffered greatly with depression. His mother died when he was six years old, and uh, his father was not around, and so he was sent to, to live in a boarding school, and the older boys were, were horrible with him, and they bullied him, and they would beat him. He experienced that all through his growing up years, and when he got into his 20s, he was so depressed that many times he tried to kill himself. And finally, he was admitted into an insane asylum, and he was cast off as being mentally lost. He struggled with guilt. He would often cry out, My sin, my sin, oh, for some fountain of cleansing. The main doctor in that, in that home was a committed Christian who, who gently, day after day after day, uh, guided Cooper to the very fountain, to the only fountain that could wash away sins. And one day, Cooper opened his Bible by the leading of this, of this doctor and he read this, this passage, whom God, talking about Jesus Christ, put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And Cooper said this, he said, Immediately I received strength to believe and full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me and I saw the sufficiency of the atonement that He had made, my pardon in His blood and the fullness and the completeness of His justification. In that moment I believed and I received the Gospel. Now candidly, Cooper continued to struggle with depression the rest of his life but he went on to serve God. 
And as I said, he wrote a song that we sing, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, that precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more. For since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And then he closed with this phrase that many of you have sung before. He said, when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a sweeter, nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. See, Cooper's experience of knowing his sins were forgiven the instant he believed in the shed blood of Jesus Christ can be your experience. Trust in in Jesus and God's wrath will be satisfied. He declared you not guilty now and forever. So we all have a choice. If you're here today and you've already trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ, then rejoice in it. And don't allow that sin that God takes so seriously to continue to be so something that you take so lightly. But address it. Whatever it is, whether it's your, your sin of pride, your sin of selfishness, your sin of anger, your sin of, uh, of, of um, gossip, whatever your sin is, deal with it. But if you're here today and you have never experienced the forgiveness of God, as much as I would love to tell you you're okay, the Bible tells us that you are on, on, a, a, on a course to face the wrath of God and it is not something that you will want to face. But just like Cooper, just like me, just like so many in here, you can have forgiveness. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us to see that because you are a just God, because you are a righteous God, that you hate sin. And because of that, that your sin demands your wrath. Our sin demands your wrath. Lord, because of how much you love, you sent your Son to take our place in the full stream of your wrath. God, I pray that you'll help us to, to, to continue to experience it. Lord, if there's some in here today who have not placed their faith in you, they have not trusted in you, Lord, I, I fear for them. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict them. Lord, for those who have, Lord, I pray that you help us to hate the sin that you have already so capably covered. Lord, I pray that you help us to to rid ourselves of that sin. Lord, we praise you for what you've done in your name. Amen.